Hello and welcome to the final episode of the Cleon Tower podcast with me, Robin Allender. And this week I'm speaking to Alistair again about his approach to songwriting. Uh, this whole conversation came about because when we first recorded those two episodes at the start, there was a whole section which I didn't end up using, which is about songwriting that got a bit theoretical and confused mainly because I don't know very much about music theory. Um, so I thought it'd be good to grab Alistair again and talk about some of the more technical aspects of songwriting, specifically chord choices, because I think it's really interesting the way uh, Alistair uses chord changes in clientele songs. Um, but it ended up being quite a fun rambling chat with plenty of detours along the way about other bands, including Madness, Subway Sect, Boards of Canada, Burial, and The Beatles. Uh, so a couple of points ahead of the episode... Um, the Fool on the Hill is in D major, not C major. I'm such an idiot. And I've also put a little bit right at the end of this episode to explain some of those technical ideas around chord changes that Alistair and I discuss, including the chord change that I mentioned in the episode that's used in Strawberry Fields Forever and Julia, and in one or two clientele songs. So warning, it does involve me getting my guitar out, but um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and I did just want to say thank you so much for listening to the clientele podcast and thank you for all of your kind comments and messages. It's been an absolute pleasure to work on this series because the Cleontel is such a such an endlessly fascinating band. So thanks for joining me, and let's take one last visit to the magical world of the Cleontel. Thanks. How are you doing, by the way? Are you all right? I'm fine. I'm a bit tired, actually. I was uh, We were at the embassy, the US embassy, this morning, so... Um, we're just like on our feet queuing for for about two and a half hours, but we got our visas, so that was the main thing, you know. Yeah, so it's all becoming real, the tour. Yeah, it's starting to get a little bit panicky about it, yeah, because we haven't really <laughs> rehearsed that much and we've got no strategy for how to play some of the songs. So we've got like a bunch of rehearsals uh, lined up to try and thrash it out. Like we're getting closer, but yeah, we're not there yet, I'm afraid. I loved it when I spoke to Mark a few weeks ago and he said he doesn't have a drum kit. <laughs> yeah, I know. He, was pra- he says he practices on his legs. Yeah, or with garage band, yeah. That's good. Um, but he's, I think, I can't remember who said it, but like, wasn't the first drummer, wasn't the drum kit like a chest of drawers or something like that? Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and and it sounded like one too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a nice touch. <laughs> uh, um, cool. Yeah, I just, um, I mean, I don't think, expect this will be that long. It's basically, I, I listened back to episode two and I feel like I, I sort of made a bit of a balls up of talking of the, talking about some of the more theory kind of ish stuff, but um, mm-hmm. not that it needs to be that technical. But I just thought it'd be nice to just have a little kind of try and go through some of those ideas again and pick up other bits and stuff but um yeah sure sure let's try it cool you may lose me as i said but i'll just tell you if i don't understand i think the issue is i lost myself i'd love to know though to start off with when you first started to play the guitar and when you first started writing songs oh i first started playing the guitar around about the age of seven um, and I was put in, I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to be in a band like Madness or the Beatles. And I was put in for guitar lessons and, 
because I was going to have a form a band with the other kids who lived in the in the same cul-de-sac that I did. My sister was going to play keyboards and we had a guy on drums and we didn't really know what a bass guitar was. I think the other guy was going to be the singer. I don't think there was a bass guitarist in it. So I got put in for lessons and I was kind of hoping to learn how to play like Day Tripper or House of Fun. And and of course it was all like rumbas and adagios and, <laughs> you know, tangos and things. It was Spanish or, or, or like South American and Spanish guitar music. And initially I was a bit nonplussed, but just really luckily I started to, to really like it. I kind of felt I had a feel for it, for like the ralentando of it, you know, the where you, you you don't play to a really strict cadence. You kind of push the bar. You push, you play slower and then faster, it, depending on how you want to express. And I really like that. And um, and I really like the nylon string guitar too. And I almost forgot about like Suggs for a while and about <laughs> uh, George Harrison. And I did that for a few years. I think I got to about grade six or seven. And uh, then I just gave up on it. I'd, I'd had enough. I'd, I wasn't really enjoying it because it was very theoretical. It was all about like sight reading and music theory and sitting exams. And it was stressing me out. I lost the enjoyment. And I didn't play guitar for ages after that. I only started to play it aged about like 15, I think, because Innes, uh, the, the co-founder of the band, had been in the same guitar lessons. He'd had the same guitar teacher as me. So there was these two like classically trained guitarists who wanted to form a pop band together, you know, and, and that's really like, that's what happened. And that's, that's the sound of the band now, you know, all these years, all these years later. But all that classical background, even though you were young, that probably put you in quite good stead for the kind of way you play guitar now. It did. I mean, because a lot of guitarists, I mean, there's, there's definite classical um, elements that, that I still stick to because I don't really know any other way to do it like I don't use a pick I use my fingers and I never ever ever stick my thumb over the the neck of the guitar with the left hand it's always behind the neck right um and and I love seeing Spanish bands like real pop bands like you know young bands like Heinz and you you see them play and they play guitar the same way and it's lovely to see yeah that they're um you know, if they play a G chord on the third fret, they've just got their their hand like this with a with a making a bar A with their first finger. Right. And I'm like, ah, you had the same kind of teacher I had. <laughs> I love it. Did you have one of those little footstool things? You know. Yeah, yeah, I did. Still got one actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to sit the right way, and it was all very kind of um, conservatory style, you know. But the music that, luckily, the music that they gave us to play was was really beautiful. You know, so um, it was it was fun to do. It was fun to learn how to do it. I didn't realise then, so you were listening to the Beatles and Madness when you were about seven. Well, Madness were a big band at that time, Yeah, you know, and my dad had a load of Beatles records. So um, I um, people used to say the other kids in the, in the cul-de-sacs, there were a few, they would say like, we did a radio show where we just, we dubbed, songs onto onto a tape and and made announcements in between and i remember putting like michelle by the beatles on and, and while it was recording from the the record player one of the kids just said like why do you like this stuff <laughs> and then all the other ones went yeah why do you like this stuff man you know <laughs> 
so that was the end of that band. <laughs> they were all fired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so, did you start writing songs then when you picked up the guitar again when you were fifteen? Is that when that started? Yeah, I didn't write songs before then, and and like Innes and I just we I used to go around his house because he lived in the countryside, and we both had. I think we'd both picked up electric guitars somewhere along the way, like really cheap Woolworths sort of style electric guitars. And we, and we didn't play in a classical way or with a finger style. We just whacked them. We hit them and we played like completely atonal, the most horrible noise we could. We were just typical 14 year olds, you know, <laughs> um, uh, but that's what we did. And then slowly, very slowly, very gradually that turned into songs um that we wrote together i guess and 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 we would do these because we, we although we like had a classical education we weren't really that good at theory and we would do this thing where i'd be playing a g a normal g chord the way someone would at the bottom of the the neck and he would play d shape like three or four frets up and we'd be like oh my god <laughs> we've discovered an amazing harmony and and it only occurred to me like about two years later he's just playing a g chord in a different way <laughs> <laughs> but those that kind of things are quite powerful when you're when you're young you, you realize god we can create something that sounds good yeah <laughs> uh, we were terrible though we were terrible for, for for many years it was embarrassing actually um and then i think that what probably saved us actually because the gap between what we aspired to and what we could do was just so big, it became disheartening, you know, because we were listening to songs like Eleanor Rigby or whatever it was, like Joy Division Records, and, and then looking at what we did. But then um, we both really got into this record by Spaceman 3, Playing With Fire, and that was so minimalist. Like, you just, you only needed to do, like, two, you only need to play two notes, and um, you kind of had it. And that saved us because we just, really paired everything back and just played very, very simply. Um, and that kind of, um, that's when things started to get good, funny enough. We just, just like uh, by becoming very minimalist, but being quite precise too, and quite sort of using that technique, but using it in a very understated way was kind of what ended up being the blueprint. And And that's the point where we felt like we were able to kind of, go into play live and things and risk the the mockery of our fellow students you know like you're not into that are you kind of thing happening all over again So were you and Innes collaborating on songs then or were you each bringing in ideas and things? Um, we mostly just brought in ideas. Sometimes, we, I mean, it sounds like you're, it sounds very, it's, it, it was very much like that sort of, you know, what you hear from Paul McCartney saying that like sometimes he finished one of mine off and sometimes I finished one of his off, but usually we, we wrote separately. And that, and that obviously not comparing Phillips and McLean to Lennon and McCartney for a single <laughs> moment. I'm just saying that the patterns were similar, if not the quality. Yeah. But at some point, I guess you started being a lot more prolific. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I think that I wrote more 
than he did later, much later, by the time we were in London, you know, kind of, because I had a, and I guess that for me, I was more comfortable with the way that all the elements that we had in play could fit together into a song. And I think he was still kind of like working it out. And you know what it's like when you're like 19, 20, 21, you're not very nice and you don't wait, wait for your friends. You just, it's like a competition almost to see who's going to be the dominant one. And so I just, I didn't really kind of like, we didn't ask me for any help, but I didn't give him any help either. And, and, um, and so it kind of became more my sort of band and my thing and my vision. And uh, eventually he, he left to, to do his own thing with the Relict, which occasionally I would help him with um, on guitar. But yeah, it, it was very much a kind of a split just because I was bombarding the band with songs. And whenever we went into the studio or played live, it was becoming more and more my stuff that was being worked on rather than his. Did you, did you get a sense when you were writing all these good songs of just how good the songs were? <laughs> Or does it not really work like that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I mean, a lot of people would say they aren't good songs, you know. (laughs) So I I always, you can't carry on without having that sense of belief. And um, with with us, while um, we didn't, we weren't rewarded with the success we felt we deserved initially, there were always, always from the very, very beginning, people around who would say that what you're doing is really special don't stop, you know, you're, you're a special band, you're a band who, you're not like other bands. And, uh, and that was, that sustained us. I think there always were people around who who said that even when like we couldn't get arrested in anywhere. Um, and, and, and that meant that we carried on because we thought so too. We thought, you know, what we're doing is actually really good and we should carry on with it and we should develop it. But it, there weren't very many people who would have shared that opinion, you know, in 1998, for instance. Mm. But it's a really special feeling when you're playing with other musicians and you know you're on to something really good. It's a really yeah powerful stuff. <laughs> and, for, and for us at the start, it was really nice too because we were all friends. We were school friends, you know, and, and I've always thought that's the way the best bands form. It's not like... Put, put put an ad in the Melody Maker or whatever it was at the time and say, I'm really into Arthur Lee and the Left Bank and the Beatles looking for a drummer. <laughs> you know, it was more like you knew the drummer because it was you who'd said to the drummer, like when they were 15, right, you, mate, you're the drummer. Get some drums and learn how to play drums. <laughs> you know, I think that's much nicer way to to form a band than kind of marriage of convenience later on, you know. So I was going to ask you some more, I guess, technical questions, but my music theory knowledge is really not very good, but I'm trying to learn as I go along. So I may get some of these technical terms wrong, but... Um... I won't know if you if you do, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the traits of your songwriting that I really love is your use of unexpected minor chords in a major key song. So it might be called borrowed chords or modal interchange or modulation. 
But I'm basically talking about this kind of quality of surprise and transformation, which I think is very typical in clientele songs. So the two examples, I think, are Reflections After Jane, which is in A major, although I thought it was B flat major, but it is in A major, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we didn't have a tuner at that time, so we just tuned to the bottom string. And if that was F, if it's gone up to F, then you'd think you're playing A, but it's actually B flat. Yeah, Yeah, you always played a lot higher in the summer and then... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know yeah. if it works that way around, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So Reflections After Jane is in A major. And then in that middle section with the I See Her All on a Golden Sunday, it goes to this A minor ninth chord and it seems to completely transform the song and take you to another place. And then there are lots of other examples of similar things in clientele songs. But on the new album, Blue Over Blue, the verses in the chorus are in F major. And then in the bridge for playing hide and seek, it goes to this unexpected C minor chord. How conscious are you of writing in that way? And does that ring true for you, this idea of this transformative kind of feeling that those chords bring? I'm not aware of writing in that way at all. I write totally by instinct. I certainly wouldn't say, oh, let's have a look at the circle of fifths and uh, just pluck some chords out. I mean, it feels to me like from, from my understanding of music theory that a C minor in the key of F wouldn't be that surprising because, you know, what was it like C, F and G go together, right? Yeah. Or C, F and B flat or the, so whether a chord is major or minor, it's still kind of, I mean, again, I, I don't have the words in music theory, but like it's still in the same kind of tonal world, isn't it? Those three chords. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't seem to me as surprising or, or anything like that. To, to, I mean, I guess I did do a lot of listening um, when I was younger. I still do now, actually. And, and I'm not very good at working out songs by other people, but I can hear the, the tricks, you know, like so a lot of 60s songs, they would have a kind of, uh, they'd go from a major and say, let's say, for example, A major to A minor mm. and then go back to a, a D or something and, and I, and I quite like that. There's a Twinkle song that does it uh, called I Need Your Hand in Mine. And, and there's bound to be, probably Paul McCartney invented it, there's bound to be Beatles songs that do it. So I would look at that and I would look at, think about how Ray Davis wrote songs in the early days. And, um, and that's kind of expanded a bit to other types of music too. And it just, it just kind of like goes in and, and you know, becomes instinctive i think if you if you do it long enough or if you like it a lot um you know like i remember being um we lived in tottenham and the same people actually where we were first second year we lived in london and this spanish guy who was a friend of a friend just suddenly appeared at our door and he ended up ended up sleeping on our sofa for about a year and a half there's a lovely fellow actually called nacho 
we all got to be really good friends with him, you know, um, and he would just come back. He worked at a bar somewhere in Oxford Street and he'd come back with like a, a Bossa Nova CD. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I like Astrid Gilberta. And he'd say, no, 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 this is like Vinicius de Moraes and the guitarist is called Tokinho and so on. And and then we that was another tonal universe because that was like, oh, man, what are they doing? They've got like, they sound like seventh chords and they're going down one fret and then it's changing a little bit. And so that was really interesting. That kind of just percolated in. Uh, and, and I suppose the only real time that I've learned, like been taught about this, was I played for a little while as a guitarist in um, Louis Philippe's band. Mm. Uh, and the guy from, he's done some string arrangements for, for us. He's a good friend. and But he is, uh, he is a theoretical musician. And he would say, uh, you know, look, you, you might not know this chord, but this is how I play it. So uh, can you play something over it? And I'd look at the chord and I'd, I'd be like, that doesn't even, that's not even a shape that I know from classical <laughs> guitar or, or playing pop music. And I'd say, well, no, no, I can play that chord, but you have to play something over it because I've got no idea what the, you know, the, the, what would work and what wouldn't. And he has a very, very clear sense of harmony as well. Um, so, I would just like, I learned a lot from him. These funny little chords, they're not hard to play. They're very simple, but they're the kind of chords Django Reinhardt played. They're jazz chords, I suppose, but proper jazz bossa nova chords. Oh, and that really taught me a lot. I was like, I can get melodies now to go where I really want them to go with these chords behind them. And I think you hear that a lot on the new record. Well, you can hear that a lot on the new record. There's a lot of these, I suppose they'd be called minor seventh diminished jazz weird things you know but you can fit a lot you can certainly be more ambitious with the the melodies you write if uh if you if you got those in your repertoire and, and that was something i learned from him and just copied really but that's probably the only time otherwise it's always been by by instinct more than anything what what george harrison called naughty chords <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, he, he he played lots of naughty chords himself. I mean, can you play like, um, you know, uh, Beware of Darkness? Oh, it's beautiful. Because I, I have no idea what he's doing in that. You know, it's all over the place. Yeah. But I think that's a really good example because in all things must pass throughout the album. It's like he's constantly reaching for this secret chord the chords are always going in unexpected directions and there was always all these lovely lush major seventh chords as well yeah and i guess that's the kind of thing i'm trying to say about your use of borrowed chords or modal interchanges it seems to reflect a lot of what the songs are about which is often you know transformation or finding something magical in something that's otherwise quite ordinary and it and those chords kind of make the music transform so that's why I find it so interesting in your own music. It's just messing around. And yeah. seeing what you find. I mean, I know what you mean about music in general. I don't necessarily know if I know what you mean about my songwriting, but, you know, The Fool on the Hill is another, another song that people, when I ran my radio station when I was, you know, eight, they were like, well, what do you like this for? <laughs> you know, but there's a bit where he sings The Fool on the Hill and, and the chords behind it, 
they change. I think that, I think they're actually quite simple chords. I don't think they're as complicated as I thought they were because I, I, I looked them up. But it's as like it's it's as if the sun goes behind the clouds. Absolutely. As that melody unfurls, and I love that so much. You know, I, I was. And that's definitely something I've tried to capture too in clientele songs, that feeling of the mood just subtly, but really, really uh, comprehensively changes as the, as the chords, you know, progress. Um, so it, that could be what you're talking about with your modal interchange. I don't know. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is, I mean, I, I think it's in, Let's say it's in C, but it goes from C major to C minor, basically, for that chorus. So it's a similar change to what's happening in Reflections After Jane, where it goes that beautiful A minor from being in an A major song for the middle middle section, and it just seems to open out and go somewhere completely different. And it is like that thing you said of the yeah the sun going behind a cloud or something shifting, you know. I find it really, really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, other the other guys have said to me, like, I think there was a song on the, the not this record, but the one before uh, called, uh, what's it called? It's towards the end of the album. It's the one that goes, tea at the refectory, then your fingers start to freeze. I can't remember what the title is. But, but they said, like, that ends in a different key than it begins in. <laughs> and I was like, does it? Oh, cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now I can say I'm like Brian Wilson, you know. Yeah. <laughs> The song Alistair's thinking about is Constellation's Echo Lanes, and it starts in E major, and then after several detours, ends up in a bluesy A, I think. Could be wrong. It's all about instinct, isn't it? And no one sits down and writes a song and goes, right, I'm going to do some modal interchange here, you know. There's a lovely story about Brian Wilson writing California Girls, and he just loved the, the shape his hands were making on the piano. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He was probably very high, but, you know. And that's fair enough, isn't it? That's pop, That's just pop music. I mean, it's it's okay to to do it instinctively. And then I think perhaps at a certain point, you get to the point where your instincts are always leading you to the same place, and then it's time to try and blow it up if you can and and do things like say, well, let's do something in a more theoretical way or a more, you know, automatic way. Like, like the idea, like the thing we did where, where you, you, you know, you get a recording of the wind and you, and you, and you make that a MIDI and then you, you use those MIDI um, patterns to score a string quartet, you know, which is much more of a kind of fluxus type experiment, I suppose. Uh, and 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 that's the point where again people say, "What are you into that for, mate?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a constant pattern, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's so it's so interesting songwriting because it it is this combination of instinct and technique, isn't it? And experimentation, and and. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to quote Nick Kershaw here. But he said <laughs> songwriting is all about decision making, which I think is a really good way of putting it because you're, you're you're constantly thinking, right, where am I going to go next? And sometimes that's a very instinctive thing, and sometimes you might rely on those naughty chords or whatever. Yeah, or you might just try and f- chuck yourself off down and see if you fall or if you land somewhere. You know, 
or record the wind and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> There's a guy like, um, I don't know if we talked about this in another episode, but there was, there was a guy called Ra- Rowan who was a music, he didn't teach me guitar, but he did, we, you know, he, he let like a bunch of hooligans basically hang out in the music rooms in our sixth form. And he was later to star in Bake Off actually many, many years later. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so, but, but, we, he was a legend to us because he was very, very proficient flute and piano player. And a guy came in with this, like, he bought a book of Jimi Hendrix uh, music and he took, he opened it up at the, the Wind Cries Mary and he, and he showed the guitar solo and he said to Rowan, like, can you play that? And he sat down at the piano and he played it note perfect. He sight read it. Wow. And and so for us, that was like a superpower. You know, we were completely in awe of him. Um, and he was a great guy too. He, he he was really into a lot of good music and he used to let, let us take new records out of the record library, in Indian classical music or Stockhausen or whatever we wanted. Um, and really expanded the way everyone thought about music at the time. But that he had that very formal classical training which gave him superpowers, but took away superpowers too, you know, because he lost that sense. I don't, I'm talking as if I know whether he wrote songs or not, and I don't. I'm now talking more widely, not about him, but about classical musicians in general who I've met or performing ones that they they lose the power to, um, to, to of instinct in a way, you know, because they know their way around their instrument and they know their way around the music theory and they can't really surprise themselves in a way that someone who's a bit dumber like myself can, you know. And and I think that's a that's a it's an interesting kind of thing. It's just it's just such a different a different you know uh, way of working. Yeah. And it requires different talents, and you know that's why going too much into music theory with this stuff. Well, apart from the fact I won't understand it. I don't know how, you know, useful it really is. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what's so fascinating about the Beatles, isn't it? The extent to which they did no theory and they obviously knew little bits and pieces, but they weren't theoretical musicians, if that's the right phrase. And it's that uncovering of what they could discover, you know, what happens if my hand goes here, you know, on the piano that makes them so amazing yeah uh, but they obviously had more than that they had instincts and they claim now you know whenever anyone tries to read us too much into a song Paul McCartney will pop up and just say well it's just something I wrote I didn't mean that at all and and he's almost like trying to play down that instinct as if like you got to keep it a secret you know because if everyone finds out about it they'll all be able to write songs like this too (laughs) you know yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) But I think as alongside that, part of that instinct I do really feel is relying on certain chord changes because they have really personal resonance for you. And I, I feel like that with John Lennon because there, there's a reason that Strawberry Fields Forever and Julia basically start with the same chord change. Mm-hmm. And they're his two most you know personal songs. So there has to be some meaning to that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 But there but it's hard to find out what it was because I mean listening to 
the original, the early demos of Strawberry Fields, it's like he's playing a rockabilly song almost. The way the way he's doing the finger picking, it sounds like a rockabilly song. And so there's all these probably different layers of memory and you know uh, convention around how he felt music should work or or what what it meant to him that we probably can't follow now. And we just have the the final thing, which is you know jaw dropping and spectacular and stunning. But to follow back, I see what you mean. You're talking about how patterns, you know, certain patterns mean things to certain people. and But then they mean something to us too, I suppose, don't they? Because it's being able to communicate that without having the backstory that's so interesting, that's so beautiful, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> I always... I mean, just to stay on the Beatles for just one minute. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I always feel like there are certain songs when you feel with John Lennon as well, where he was really trying to get it finished and so relying on certain things like the use of the minor four chord and things like that, like in Nowhere Man and um, In My Life and uh, even Bungalow Bill. <laughs> it kind of mm. crops up everywhere. Uh, and it's and I really like that. It's kind of like I really need to get this finished. Let's just put one of those in or something, you know. But um, yeah, yeah, that's the. I think that's the chord I was talking about from Twinkle as well, where you go from a major to a minor in the same, um, but it's the same chord, and then you go back to the root note again. Yeah, 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 yeah. It got it, it, it. You have to really disguise it though, because it's a bit hackneyed these days. You know, it sounds very like swinging sixties. And so if I love to use it, but I kind of slip it in. I hide it a bit <laughs> rather than sticking it out front, like in Nowhere Man, you know. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, there's a really lovely quote from the journalist Mark Richardson, uh, which is from his review of the Suburban Light reissue in 2014, um, where he says, McLean is an inventive guitar player and he sings with real emotion and he also has the songwriting chops to hang with his earlier pop heroes, part of why Suburban Light feels so bound to memory, which is a great phrase, is because the construction of the songs harkens back to an age when the right chord change, when paired with the precise melodic turn, counted for everything. The songs seem old in part because their melodic conception is from another era, one when competition for penning tunes was thick. I think that's really great description of your songwriting how do you respond to that other than having your ego inflated quite a bit <laughs> well it, it's very flattering and and you know clearly untrue but, <laughs> um because in those days the competition for penning songs was thick but if you didn't have a hit if you didn't succeed you would immediately fall into oblivion you know so <laughs> the fact I'm here talking to you 20 years or whatever into my career shows that things have changed um, in terms of bands that don't sell many records. But I think that um, when you read that, I thought, well, isn't it still the same now? Um, and I guess it's not, is it? I mean, because a lot of popular music now is based on the vamping, you know, like the kind of the, the hip hop style vamp on the beat which I really love too. I, I, I think it's, you know, it's really exciting. It's such a great rhythmic kind of form. But it's, I mean, I don't know. I'm a bit speechless, really. I, can't, I kind of think like, well, aren't, doesn't every band want the right 
melodic turn with a right chord still that, that that aren't like making that more electro sort of um electronic music doesn't every guitar band still want to do that or or do they not i don't know is that really that old <laughs> i don't know i guess for me it's like you can either get really into chords when you're learning the guitar or you can get really into riffs i think oh god yeah and there are certain bands which are are big chord bands and there are certain bands which are more riff bands but yeah it's all about finding something that you, where you go oh that's nice you know so it's all part of a the same thing i mean you're right about riffs though because i was thinking oh you go straight from the kind of back rack and beatles to um to hip-hop but of course there's the bloody power trio isn't there in between yeah <laughs> which i just written out of my memory and which is just yeah i don't like that kind of music at all that that riffing and heavy metal stuff and just stupid guitar solos empty virtuosity and things you know but i think that then when punk comes along and you get people like vic goddard i'm not i'm using vic goddard as an example because he's someone i i think i respect from that time he does work in terms of unexpected melodies and unexpected chord changes you know um or pete shelley as well maybe yeah yeah, I think I find him a little more predictable. Okay. But yeah, but 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 yeah, the, okay, for melodies at least, yeah. Um um so that I think that that interest gets revived around that point and the, it, you can't kill heavy metal. It always comes back, you know. <laughs> they're still but but the the I think since then really there's a strand of guitar music that still is interested in chord patterns and melodies. Yeah. You know, leading you somewhere unexpected. Definitely. I think you and James are the only people I've ever met who never had a metal phase. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. No, no, no. No metal, no goth. No. No, no shouting. That was one of your rules, wasn't it? It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It had enough of it at school or in the pub. You didn't need it in your music, you know? Yeah. Wow. But you never had a kind of teenage rebellion where you wanted to play, I suppose, you know, Spaceman 3 gets pretty heavy, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, there's the, that kind of Spaceman 3, MC5, mm. Stooges stuff. Um, but I'm, I had a cousin who was a real metaler and he used to say to me, I used to see him every summer. I'd go, he'd live, you know, he lived in the town where my parents were from in Scotland. I used to go up there on holiday and he'd go, come to Donington this year, come to Donington. It will all make sense to you. And I was, was like, get away from me, you freak. <laughs> I love the idea of you going to Donington. <laughs> I never did. I right. never did. <laughs> yeah. But then, of course, you know, moving on as well into electronic music and dance music, which I know you're a fan of as well. And, a lot of that does away with melodicism entirely in some ways. Yeah, there's not a lot of key changes either. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a category error to compare those different types of music. They're just different strands and they do different things. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. And I, I love the hypnotic feel of a lot of uh, dance music. And someone, and then you get, do get someone like Boards of Canada who who start to give you glimpses of that incredible melodic invention that that you that, that people prize so much in bands like the Beatles but they're they're a dance band that's one of the things that's so 
overwhelming and baffling about Boards of Canada. You know, they're um, so it can be done. Yeah, I think the fascinating thing with Boards of Canada is when you listen to them, you think, well, everything is about the production, the synth sounds. But when you, if you try to play those chord progressions on the guitar, they would still sound very eerie and evocative. Yeah. So they they are genius songwriters, you know. Yeah, they are, definitely. I mean, there's a there's a pack you can download on Ableton, which is called Boards of Canada Sounds. Yeah. Uh, and I've done it. I have to come come out and be public about that. But, <laughs> you know, and, and you get all the kind of pads for the, 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 the synths, the synth sounds that they use, particularly on the first record, and the, the snare sounds and whatnot. And you try making a Boards of Canada song with that, and, and you get it sounds it sounds like Boards of Canada, but you don't want to listen to it. You know, it's because it's they they are very very inventive melodically. You know, really 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 like just to me they're the the Beatles of of our generation really, mm. and big Beatles fans as well. A song called Nothing Is Real, going back to Strawberry Fields. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, they've gone on record saying they love the psychedelic era of Beatles. And yeah, you can kind of tell. <laughs> Do you sort of see the comparison between what they're doing and what the clientele is doing in terms of it being this strange way of the past intersecting with the present and stuff? Well, it's a conceptual comparison, isn't it? It's not, there isn't a, a lot of similarities in, uh, or wasn't, historically a lot of similarities in the sounds between the two bands but and because their music has no words the fact that we're sitting here saying it's about the past <laughs> coming into the present shows how evocative it is yeah They're, you know because they don't ever say that having said that there is a boards of canada song that starts with this They make um, sounds from old sounds and or old technology and in a kind of really interesting way because it's not obvious. It's not like in your face like a lot of so-called hauntological bands are. Um, and I think that perhaps in that sense we did the same thing, that we had kind of tinny guitar sounds that were very hyper-compressed. They sound like something from an old forgotten record from the 60s, a Shell Tell Me production or something. And, and and although it was never meant that way in a conceptual way, it was never an idea that we had that we would do that. We just did it. I can kind of see why people might make a comparison there, that, that there is that sort of sense of the sound is almost the sound of memory in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, do you like Burial as well? Are you a fan of Burial stuff? I do, yeah. I quite like burial, yeah. Um, I love the the night the song "Night Bus" by by him. I like the first record a lot, and the the big big bass that I think somebody, some journalist somewhere said it was like this. The the, the big subsonic bass was like the sound of an approaching tube train. It was so big, yeah. which I thought, yeah, you, that's that is how it sounds, yeah. yeah. And I like the the rhythms. Apparently the rhythms are not quantized or whatever. He just does them. It's like he's a drummer, you know, which is a really, really interesting way to do this. It's like almost going full circle. Um, so, yeah, I'm a fan of Burial, yeah.
what's your favorite boards of canada album uh i got asked this the other day for another interview <laughs> i mean i love them all i love the but i i i particularly i think i always end up choosing the first one because it's the first one i heard we had like a drummer um when dan our original drummer left which is really sad for us because he was part he was like the first original member to leave the band but he wanted to go and I think it was obvious to him he wasn't about to be able to buy a chateau in France with what the clientele <laughs> were bringing in. And um, he he had more important things to do and, and, and he, that was the right decision. But we bought, we got this other drummer called Howard Monk who was a very technically gifted drummer and he plays on songs, some of the songs on Suburban Light. And uh, he, he was, I'd always thought before then, well, what do you want to even need a drummer for? Just get them to play 4-4 four, four, and then the song will go over it and and it's the song that matters it's the singing it's the words it's the tune and the chords the drums just keep time but howard isn't that kind of drummer <laughs> i mean he 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 wanted to stretch things out and 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 change things and come up with interesting rhythms and the first person i was oblivious to it i was like well as long as he plays in time he can do whatever he wants you know but the first person who became aware of it was james who was playing the bass and um he was like oh he's really challenging us a bit here we have to kind of change the emphasis of some of the songs we have to change the way the bar works and i was like oh really okay um and 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 that definitely changed the way that i wrote songs because i thought oh the I mean, this sound makes me sound like an idiot, and it probably was, but I just thought, oh, the um, the rhythm of a song can actually really add something to it. You know, it's really interesting. Um, I actually listen properly to the drums in a in a kind of thoughtful way rather than just feeling them. Anyway, Howard was Howard said, oh, you know, there's a band you should check out, or he wrote it down as one of his favourite bands in an interview we did or something. Boards of Canada, music has the right to children. And and I bought it because I thought I need to expand my, I need to hear some different music. And it was just like love at first hearing. I felt like I'd come home when I heard it. It was like just so overawed by it. And I just thought, and I didn't really have that much knowledge of electronic music either. I was more interested in guitar bands, but I was like, wow, this is just everything I want from music. It's just absolutely overwhelmingly transcendentally beautiful. And then everything they've done since has been so fascinating. But but that was the first one. And so it was like the first cut is the deepest, you know. Yeah. That's probably my favourite one. Yeah. I think it's amazing the first reaction so many people have to them. And I remember it vividly, was hearing that track, Roigbiv. Yeah. You know, The Colours of the Rainbow. Yeah. And it just evoking this image so clearly of a kind of... Um, 70s, you know, science TV show or something like that. And, I, you know, I wasn't alive in the 70s, so where did that come from? <laughs> you know, that, that was the extraordinary thing. It was like nostalgia for something that wasn't even my own life, you know. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. It, I, it, I mean, I was just about alive in the 70s. and But I, I don't know. I mean, the 70s lasted long time into the 80s you would have heard those sounds in the 80s too yeah yeah you know but i think it's more than just the technology i think it's like i I don't i'm not necessarily impressed by these ideas that they use like fibonacci numbers for the frequencies of the the tones that they use or anything like that doesn't seem to me like particularly 
that that's the key to it. That's the secret to it. But there's just something that they do that instantly kind of hypnotizes you and, and reminds you of being in flow like you, like you were as a child. Yeah. And, and it's just such a beautiful thing. It is. I think it's just the effort they go to. I mean, I, I think there's one thing where I think there was just this one obscure synth that, you know, they had to, I'm probably getting this story wrong, but they had to go to kind of Australia australia to find it and you know there's only like five made or something and it's used for like two seconds on the last album or something like that i just think that obsessive care is there somehow yeah that it clearly matters to them and and the way they they record some stuff analog and they record some stuff digital and you know the blend of it it's it's very interesting Mm. yeah there's another great interview. I remember they read, they they had some tape sample, some tape loop, and they said they degraded it so much that it sounded like it came from hell, which is such a great line. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> I wonder as well, um, do you know Bibio at all? Have you heard much Bibio? He's on Warp Records. No, I don't know them, no. There's a really good album called Phantom Brickworks, which is really excellent. Um, I'd recommend that. I'll check it out, yeah. Bibio. Bibio, yeah. There's a beautiful... I think he called the album that because he did some field recordings in this abandoned brickworks, mm-hmm. and there was loads of sound on the tape that he hadn't recorded. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hence the name Phantom Brickworks, you know. So it was like almost these ghostly sounds, but it's a very, very beautiful album. I'll check that out, yeah. There's another um, artist, actually, we're talking about artists, called... Um, Tom James Scott have you heard of him no I haven't no he, he's like more of a um, more abstract uh, kind of wire magazine type artist I suppose but I saw him play at Cafe Otto and he just played a nylon string guitar and he obviously has classical training and um, he played very 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 quietly he just like more quietly in front of a large audience that ever ever would dare to do he had a record called Red Deer which is absolutely beautiful, but but that's much more kind of, I mean, I hate all these labels that people give to music because it just cheapens it so much. I was going to call it ambient, but it's not ambient. It's just beautiful on its own terms. You don't need to call it anything, you know, but, 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 but if it was reviewed, it would be under the ambient section. And um, it's got a lot of space and a lot of patience. Uh, and that was a real heads up to me as well in terms of songwriting that, you know, you don't need to cram everything with hooks. You can actually make people wait and then the hooks work better when they land, you know, almost. That sounds great. I'll have to check it out. I mean, sorry, I won't keep you for long, but just one. Have you heard of James Blackshaw at all? No, no. Brilliant 12-string guitarist, but his stuff was really... He's still recording now, actually, although he's taken quite a big break from music. But his stuff was really, you know, on the border between, you know, it's beautiful melodicism. And he's he's an insanely talented guitarist and more abstract ambient stuff. And, yeah, it's, it's really, really beautiful stuff. It sounds kind of similar. Well, I can't type it now because it'll go... Bonk, bonk, bonk in the in the microphone. So maybe send send. <laughs> I'll me. send you an email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Oh, thanks so much, Alistair, for that that chat. That was that was really good. It went in a lot of interesting directions. I think. 
Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's good. I have, my thoughts are more organised than normal because I'm just talking to so many people at the moment. Um, yeah. So it's 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 nice to kind of do it in a more um, less formal way, I suppose. So there we have it, the end of an ear. Thank you so much to the clientele for asking me to make this podcast series and to all of my guests for taking part. Thanks to Johnny White, Dave Collingwood, Max Tundra and Ruth Tebby for your help and support and thank you so much for listening. As I said, there's an extra bit of bonus content now of me talking about chords. Uh, but once again, thanks for listening and I'll see you around. Hello, me again. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to go through a few of those ideas we talk about in the episode. Um, but I love that idea that Alistair mentioned, which is there are certain chord changes that sound uh, like the sun going behind a cloud. And I think one that's such a good example of that is in We Could Walk Together, which starts like this. It goes between these two chords. That's the famous minor ninth chord that's used in a lot of Cleontel songs. And it goes up to and then it goes down to the this this major chord like that but then for the bridge instead of going to the major chord it goes to the minor minor version of that chord like that which is the famous like a silver ring thrown into the flood of my heart bit which is the bridge and I think that's just one of those lovely changes of mood that's in Cleontel songs. Um, the other thing is, as well, Alistair and I, we talked briefly about minor four chords, and, he, and Alistair says that you know, it sounds very swinging 60s, which I think is really true. And a minor four chord is, if, say, if you're playing in the key of G and you're playing simply like that, then going to the minor four would be... It takes you very nicely back to that tonic chord, and it's... Um, it's used a lot in in Beatles songs, no, notably Nowhere Man, which is... That's the minor four there. And it's so ubiquitous, you, you'll hear it in so many songs once you spot it. It's in, it's in Creep by Radiohead, it's in Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, the other thing, staying on the Beatles as well, I mentioned that the similarities between Strawberry Fields Forever and Julia, and what I'm talking about there is, I'm going to imagine that they're both in the key of C um, here, just for ease. Um, Strawberry Fields starts with... So it starts with the C major chord, the tonic chord, and then goes down to G minor. So it's this really unusual borrowed chord and it seems to totally change the mood of the song and in Julia it's it's not at the beginning of the song like I say in the episode it's kind of the chorus of Julia which goes so again it's going down to that five chord but a minor version of it so it's like a minor five so a G minor in the key of C um, and, and yeah, again, it's just 
such a beautiful chord change that changes the mood of the song. And that's the chord change I'm talking about in Blue Over Blue, which is in the key of F. And the playing hide and seek. Going down like that, it's just such a lovely change that really changes the mood of the song. It's very transformative, I think. Um, anyway, I think that's it for now, but once again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you around.